0: So I think education, to me, comes out of a passion and a desire to transmit information to a willing audience. Every teacher wants a willing audience. I just happen to gravitate towards subject material that people wanted to learn. So in outdoor recreation, when you're teaching students how to rock climb or canoe or tie knots or learn how to make a, a campfire, they're there and they're captive. They actually want to learn this information. So I think from an education and a teaching perspective, I was, from, I was fortunate enough to teach a subject material that was interesting, and the students there were willing. They wanted to learn it, so it makes the paradigm of teaching a little bit easier. I've taught formal education, I was a substitute teacher, taught kindergarten through high school uh, as part of making up a career, fell into working at the collegiate system simply by being asked at a time early in my life to come in and do a guest speaking opportunity to a class of students. And I was got, you know, by the end of the, the class, I was uh, given an offer to teach a class.
1: Kevin, it's time to turn the tables. <laughs> if you had to bring one condiment with you to an island on which you are stranded, what condiment would it be? Well, the first thing I have to do, Jeff, is I have to comment on the questions.
0: <laughs> the history of this question goes back to our first interaction. Um, you know, the, the simple answer is it has to be ketchup. Um, and I say that a thousand times over the course of the time that I've used that question as when I, and I try to break the ice and have conversations with people. So I was not, I was not surprised by the, the fact that you turn the tables on me and want to ask, answer the question. I think the question, the answer to the question is ketchup. Um, I think you could go as far as mustard and maybe sriracha sauce as options. If you say mayo, I think it's probably you need to go get uh, checked because it seems to me like the condiment of least choice and least practicality if one was stranded on a deserted island. So uh, I'm going to go with my standard answer of ketchup.
1: What if if we rebranded mayo to garlic ale? You see, I think it's too specific.
0: I think if you were trapped on a deserted island and for the rest of your life you were going to eat something, I think you'll find solace in ketchup. I think ketchup is a comfort food, and you can also make soup out of it, right?
1: And it could be a sunscreen, right? True, true. I haven't thought of it that way, but yeah. of course, that's that's a way that someone like you would think about it. Oh. Welcome to yes. Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of healthcare, health tech, and health systems. On this pod, we do a long form podcast where we learn about the stories, secrets, and skills uh, of those who seek to make our lives longer and healthier overall. We've interviewed venture capitalists, doctors, engineers, tech transfer agents, Olympic hopefuls, and your occasional mass-gathering medical systems expert. This time around, we've got the inimitable Kevin Jones, President and Chief Operating Officer of Odyssey Medical. Kevin, how are you doing? Today is a great day, sir. I appreciate the opportunity to come on the podcast. I, I loved
0: your I loved your, your uh, intro. Definitely not qualified to be in any of the categories that you mentioned, so I appreciate that. Olympic hopeful has never been on my list of things I was ever going to be. Uh, but enjoy the enjoy the intro. Uh, today is a good day. Uh, it's the end of a planning cycle for us. So Monday, Tuesdays are kind of our Saturday Sundays for, for the most people because we do lots of work on the weekends. So I uh, didn't mean I wasn't at the office today, but we're just coming off of a busy weekend getting ready for the next.
1: That's great. I also noticed uh, for the listeners who are just listening to the pod that your, your shirt is the same color as your wall. And I appreciate that synchronicity.
0: It does. It does. Some people are like, you like orange. And I'm like, I love orange. Uh, it's my favorite. It's my favorite company, the company color. Uh, ironically, though, I would never suggest anyone buys an orange vehicle. That feels like overcommitment to the color orange. So for me, orange is a great accent color. It's an accent wall color. Occasionally, it's my uh, hunting shirt, you know, for work. But uh, yeah, orange is definitely, it's brand, it's branded into my life.
1: I know my, my, my car, my girlfriend would describe is the color of Molina. So bloody stool. So I I would, I would argue, I would hard argue that orange is a better color than the color of Molina, but, um, for, for, for the sake of not talking about stool or condiments anymore. Yes. (laughs)
0: Let's get the hard stuff out of the way, Jeff. Now let's get to the easy stuff.
1: Of course. Kevin, you've got a background in education with Jordan College and with I am going to totally butcher this name, Goujon Insurance. It's Uh, that's a
0: very no, no. That's listen, listen. That is very good. Most people get it wrong, but that is very good.
1: All right, all right. That was a that was a one in a hundred guess to me. Yeah, these different experiences seem like completely separate fields that one would aim to work in as someone coming up uh, in their career. So by ways of trying to, I guess, break the ice, but not really break the ice, introduce your story, which interest came first?
0: So my back, my truest background is in recreation. It's where I studied at the collegiate level. I studied recreation. I think by nature of who I am and what I've done in my life, education, both formal and informal have been a very big part of my life. So, I spent many years working in recreation, which in in as an extension, is teaching. right Teaching and outdoor recreation uh, is a form of education that I'm passionate about. I wasn't a very good student. I was the student who thrived in the alternative options for education. Uh, it has been said and quoted many times, "Don't let school get in the way of your education." And so I had lots of opportunities I had lots of opportunities in life to to educate myself and be educated in a very non-traditional way. Not be by choice, but probably just by uh, the nature of how I absorb information. So I think I'm a kinesthetic learner. I learn by doing. And I think for me, I inherited that and wanted to transfer that, which is there's lots of students that can learn, but they're going to learn in non-traditional ways. So I found myself coming out of working for 15 years in outdoor recreation, which is working with people, working with young people, working in the development phases and education of people's lives. And wanting to believe that it's something that I can offer, which is really the transmission of information and knowledge through relationship versus power. So be standing in front of the classroom of the chalk saying, Jeff, you will learn these multiplication tables and you will memorize these facts. I thought, well, there's a different way to learn information, transmit, retain and take the life lessons. I think if you go back at, to your own primary school education and say, Jeff, what, like, what do you remember about your primary education? most people at some point will stumble across a field trip, a camp trip, a teacher who took interest in their sport activities, a teacher or an educator who took interest in you as a person versus your academic successes. I didn't see academic success by by grades, but I think there was a lot of teachers along the way that recognized that I had something to offer, but it wasn't going to be in my multiplication tables, right? I still struggle with <laughs> some aspects of mathematics and those sorts of things. Uh, So I think education to me comes out of a passion and desire to transmit information to a willing audience. Every teacher wants a willing audience. I just happen to gravitate towards subject material that people wanted to learn. So in outdoor recreation, when you're teaching students how to rock climb or canoe or tie knots or learn how to make a a campfire, they're there and they're captive. They actually want to learn this information. So I think from an education and teaching perspective, I was from. I was fortunate enough to teach a subject material that was interesting. And the students there were willing. They wanted to learn it. So it makes the paradigm of teaching a little bit easier. I've taught formal education. I was a substitute teacher, taught kindergarten through high school uh, as part of making up a career, fell into working at the collegiate system simply by being asked out a time early in my life to come in and do a guest speaking opportunity to a class of students. And I was got you know by the end of the, the class, I was given an offer to teach a class. And I remember calling my father at the time, and the, at the time, and saying, not my father at the time, but my father in time. I said, "Hey, I'm going back to school." And he's like, "Good for you. I think it's good that you're going to go back and pursue higher education." I think, "Yeah, but I'm going on the other side of the desk." And he's like, "Pardon?" I'm like, "Yes, yeah, I'm <laughs> to teach." And he's like, "I say that again, you know, of all of his of, of the three the, the, the three kids, I was probably the most unlikely to go back and teach." Of course, I'm not going to teach in a traditional format. So mm-hmm. I spent 17 years teaching uh, between a partial and a full time load at the collegiate system, specifically in a program that was was designed really around kinesthetic learners. So we, I did the ski resort operations program, um, and it's a program that funnels students into resort management opportunities specifically related to the ski industry. So lots of really cool opportunities to teach, really fantastic students, but weren't going to be students that were going to be in a mainstream program. They wanted to pursue education related to their passion. So we were fortunate enough over the years to build a program that was really responsive to the needs of the students. So going out and teaching my students ATBs and how to operate chainsaws and do first aid and tie knots and stuff. So I still gravitated towards content that I felt passionate about, Mm -hmm. right? And that as an extension of that, and, and in the meantime of all of that, I got involved in working with the insurance industry. And, and this portion of the program was really in the risk management program. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to work with a brokerage firm out of Sudbury, Ontario, Goujean, as you very well said, Jeff, uh, which was a, a, a family brokerage that specialized in providing insurance for what we would classify in the category of higher risk. So these are going to be resorts, rafting operations, mountain biking, hunting, fishing lodges, those sorts of things. And I was fortunate enough to spend about 10 years working with them on the road as an as a risk and safety auditor. So that would be involved going into a facility, spending the day. And our motto was that we participated in the activities when available, to participate in the activity to understand it. So instead of it being clipboard assessment, okay, Jeff, yes, no, no, yes, no. It was more like, hey, I'm going to go for the day. I'm going to participate along with your staff, and I'm going to get some valuable and real insights as to what you actually do. Um, And by embedding yourself into the program, you get a better sense of the risk, right? And risk is ever-present. We can't eliminate it. We can only manage it, right? The safety portions of the program, we can enhance the risks we accept, and we try to mitigate life is full of risk. Um, And we were very fortunate to work with willing clients. And these clients were willing to listen and learn and absorb and understand the recommendations, and we didn't take an enforcement stance. It wasn't like, you must, or you're not going to get. It was, here's some list of recommendations. And very, very rarely over the course of hundreds of audits, did we ever get to a point where we're like, if you don't do this, there's going to be a consequence. Because that wasn't the program approach. The program approach was through seven times education, one time enforcement, right? Can I can I explain to you? Can I educate you? Can I showcase? Can I help you by giving you templates and tools that will help you get to where we want you to be? And ultimately, that made, again, for a very symbiotic relationship with your insurance company, right? For those of you who are listening, carry insurance. When was the last time your insurance broker called and said, hey, Jeff, how are things going in your life? Are we got you? Do we have you calculated properly? Do we understand the risks involved in your business operations? And then tailor a program that suits your needs. So, I believe, and if I look at the executive of my company, the team, that my senior leadership, we're all educators, both formally or informally. And I believe that the power of education teaches you baseline communication skills, and I think it also enhances your ability to relate. Because as you go through students, my job as an educator is to teach the material in a way that my students can receive it. And when you have a classroom of 30 students, um, you have to find a different way to reach the majority of your students. It's never perfect. And I can appreciate, and I've got lots of history and traditional education to understand that when you're teaching mathematics, it's not always as easy as it's said. right? When I'm teaching a skill, there are some students that are going to master that skill pretty much natively. They're going to get it right away. There's going to be the bulk of the students who are going to learn it. And then there's going to be some students who are just going to be not able to, for a variety of reasons. Could be physical, could be interpretive of what the material and the expectation is. And it also, it also could be psychomotor skills, the ability, I think, to actually put all the components together to execute the task. And, and you know, we're never, we're not all going to be really good athletes. We all took phys ed, right? We were all exposed to all the different activities, sports, but none of like very, a very small percentage of us went on to pursue any professional level, you know, sports. Um, I am a really good house league player. I'll play anything. I'll play anything at the beer league level.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you've highlighted your your story as kind of, I guess, to an extent, linear. It, it isn't linear because you went from opportunity to opportunity, and you brought yep your skill set from, I guess, outdoor education to indoor education about ski resorts, which, by the way, is super cool, and the economics behind it's fascinating, but mm-hmm. not part of this podcast. No. Um, <laughs> And then you tie that into entrance through serendipitous means, and you've tied your education skills into how you delivered that partnership around uh, entrance. But have you ever brought your entrance hat in terms of risk management back into the classroom?
0: I think classroom, I think that it's inherent with the teaching that I was doing. I was constantly in risk management mode because we were taking our students into non-traditional environment. Mm -hmm. So we would take our students whitewater rafting. Not every school or program is designed to take your students out of the class and expose them. But for me, coming from outdoor recreation, that was normal. That's what we did. We were hired to bring students, educate and engage with them in the out of doors, which for some of the non-traditionalists, for a traditional teaching environment, seems a bit intrinsically difficult. So I give you an example. I worked at a facility that had a mountain bike program and a rock climbing wall, and we would offer that as a co-program. So you would, the students would do one program in the morning and one in the afternoon. And through the marketing and sales process, we have teachers that go, oh, no, 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 we can't do rock climbing. That's way too dangerous. And I'm like, hmm, let's process that for a minute. I'm going to take a 17-year-old boy and I'm going to put him on a bicycle and I'm going to take him out and I'm going to spend an hour teaching him how to do some basic sales. And then I'm basically going to set that person free on a trail to make their own decisions under their own power. And that's going to have positive result. I'm going to take somebody to a climbing wall. I'm going to tie them into a rope. I'm going to connect them to a safety system. I'm going to be intimately connected to that suit while they engage. And basically the experience is in my control, right? And the perception of risk was that rock climbing was more dangerous than the mountain biking because cycling is more accepted. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if you looked at it from a risk perspective, there is a higher probability, a chance that someone's going to get hurt mountain biking. They have to make their own decisions. They're in control of their own speed. They're in control of their own braking. They're in control of their own decision of, do I go on the, the, the green trail, the yellow trail, or the red trail, right? Whereas if you're in a climbing environment, you and I are intimately connected. We're going up an artificial climbing wall and we're coming. I'm pretty much in control of most of that experience. And the margin for error is very, very small because the decision for the student is to go up or go down. And yeah. if they don't, if they go up, they're going to come down because gravity is going to say you're coming down. I'm in control of that versus allowing us to free ride and decide and make their own choices. So a lot of what we dealt with and what I try to conceptualize is the perception of risk versus the risk reality. Take the numbers, understand the facts and then say, is this in fact really dangerous? One could argue the bus ride up to any facility was more dangerous statistically than the activity itself. It's just perception. So it's constantly dealing with idea and the perception. And that happens a lot in the event world, right? People think certain events are dangerous and risky. But when you boil them all down and distill the information, the answer is they're, they're, they're actually statistically not, right? But it's just the perception. Oh, 50,000 people at a music festival, people are going to get hurt. They're going to decide to overindulge in, in, in drugs and alcohol. And the, the answer is, what do you think happens in a major city on a regular day? That behavior is ever present. We manage it, we mitigate it through systems, and we take, the, we take and understand the risks. We just want to put the safety systems in place to say what happens, nothing happens, right? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. us in a nutshell.
1: That's super interesting. And the, the way that you frame risk management in terms of prevention, as well as thinking through the exact risk of each associated step that you take, instead of just taking the perceived risk at hand, really is something that I relate to coming from a medical background because yeah. really the, the, the whole point of medicine is like do no harm, right? right? So you want to prevent risk. There's always like risk stratification, et cetera. So I identify that. And I think that crosses over very much into the risk management slash insurance world. But where our worlds kind of align is event medical management and nowhere, I guess, nowhere directly in your path so far that you've told me really, you know, lands you directly in the world of event medical management. And I see that grit on your face. Uh, hey, tell me the story.
0: Oh, I came I came at it by accident. Right. And that's a pun intended. Right. So it because of working at different types of facilities, managing safety, risk and response. Right. At the end of the day, event medicine is We believe it to be about prevention, but at some level, it's about response and reaction, right? Because we don't control the behavior of the participants, right? As a clinician, you don't control the behavior of your patients. What Mm -hmm. you can do is advise, counsel, but at some level, you are going to react, treat that person to care for them based on their decisions. Some are decisions and some aren't. Some are just medical factoids that happen to people and it happens to them for no particular reason or no history. It's just the way that their, their body has decided to react to certain situations. So for me, I fell into this business, saw a need and built it slowly over time. Um, and I made every single mistake that a business owner and a business, an entrepreneur can make along the way. I have some mentors. I do, I provide some mentorship to some business people some young business uh, and entrepreneurs. And I was like, everything I can tell you, I just tell you, I can tell you by accident. I can tell you because I've probably made that mistake. Um, and hopefully, I've learned from the mistakes. Sometimes you don't. As an entrepreneur, when I started the business, I, I say to people, I jumped off the cliff and built the plane on the way down. You can probably tell by my personality, I didn't have a lock type business plan. That gives pres- most people, when they run a business plan, in a business such as the event business, they probably would conclude it's probably not a reasonable business to be in because the variable nature of the business, the service model, is is extraordinarily volatile, right? Mm-hmm. We go a regular year pre-COVID, the event space is, is volatile. COVID, watched 95% of our business disappear in 96 hours, right? The world got shut down. Don't gather in, pe- in groups. Okay, well, that's events, right? Worked through two years of two two and a half years, almost three years of uncertainty, and now of coming back out of the light of a global pandemic that hopefully you and I never see again in our life. But so all of that was about being adaptable, understanding the opportunity. At the end of the day, building I think building a good product or offering a good service will inherently make what you do easier. But not everybody buys into what you're offering because the services that we offer don't. Always get tested. Mm -hmm. You have an airbag in your car, Jeff?
1: Uh, Yes. Is it a good
0: airbag? Is it a good airbag? I don't know until it's used. Exactly. So when you look at our services that are built around safety systems, airbags, fire extinguishers, event medical companies, 911 services, mom has that little chain around her neck and she hits the button and she hopes somebody answers the phone at the other end and says, hey, you don't know that unless you test it. So a lot of what we deal in the uncertainty of the marketplace is that people don't know what, deal, what they don't have certainty, right? Because they don't, they said, oh, well, I have this safety program and it's fantastic, but they don't actually know that it works because it's never been tested. Mm-hmm. Then we have mm-hmm. world events, Boston Bar- Marathon, 10-year anniversary this year, Astro World. There's countless examples where the safety systems have been tested and we've learned from the, both the successes. I don't say failures. But the opportunities because i'm trying to put a positive spin on the fact that you cannot prevent everything from happening because you can't conceivably think of everything that something's going to happen and every time something happens it's like why didn't i think of that every time you think of that positively in your life you probably can think of that negatively i never thought about that and the answer is well of course you didn't because you're not thinking about how to hurt people right so Mm -hmm. i think the variable nature of the work that we've done has taught us over time through repetition lessons and expectations So when I went into this business, started off 10 by 10 pop up tent and a couple of people, you know, standing at an event, at an event ready to provide services and aid and did many, many, many events, Jeff, where we did nothing. Thankfully, where services that goes unrecognized until used, when used is oftentimes critiqued for the way that it's done. Um, but at the end of the day, we hope that there's a balance of what people feel, the emotion of feeling, uh, I feel safe when I know that there's a team here that's going to react, but at the end of the day, we can't control what happens on the event because we're not in control of the participant, their actions, their behavior, and their choices. So we go prepared, ready for the eventuality. We can't be, we can't respond to every eventuality, but we can provide baseline expectations based on the, the risk match care, which is a term we've coined, which is mm-hmm. looking at the, uh, the idea of the event through the lens of risk. What can happen? What is a, what's a practical response for any private organization providing out of hospital emergency response care. And then how can we support the organization to raise the alarm, get more help, bring that support in. And at some point we have to transfer that to the public system and say, we've done the best we could for this time. And then we hand it over to the public system and
1: say, you guys need to take it from here. Mm -hmm.
0: All the while, it's getting more complicated.
1: Of course. And of course, you built this, as you said, while you wh- while you were on the way down. As you went, was there a particularly inciting instant that made you realize that there was a need in this space?
0: I think because I was in this space, I think people had a lot of perceptions, and there's a lot of education needed to happen about what an event medical company was there to provide. Yeah. So we get compared to a lot of organizations, and one of the most frequent things we hear about is well, where's your ambulance? We don't have any. Well, you should. Okay, but we can't. Oh, yes, you can. Other companies have ambulances. They have ambulances. They're trucks that look like ambulances, but they're not able to legally transport a patient in an emergency situation to a care facility. And so you spend time educating people. And they've gone through their whole events life believing that that ambulance was there from a private company was able to transport So I loved that portion of being able to educate people as to why the services need to be remodeled and looked differently. We need to look at it from a different lens and educating people as to what can be done appropriately. And right service, right patient, right time, right time, right person, right saves is really our model. At some point, if somebody's injured at a site and they have a long bone fracture, okay, they have a leg fracture. There's nothing we can do for you at a site that's a temporary healthcare space, we need to put you in an ambulance and get you to a hospital. Why? Mm-hmm. Because that's what the Canadian socialized healthcare system is built on. Mm-hmm. Get you in an ambulance if you have sutures that were required. So you need two, three sutures in your knee because you fell off your bike. And we have the clinical staff and capabilities to do it. Well, why can't we take you care of you and at the same time take the pressure off of the healthcare system? The healthcare system is under so much pressure. And you, you know, if you've spent any time in the states and you view the non-socialized healthcare system. The cost associated with receiving care is a deterrent. My belief is that under the provisions of the law, a person putting on an event has a duty and an obligation to provide some baseline care. Um, and that deciding what that baseline care has a lot to do with the conversation with the promoter, the organizer, the facility to say, hey, Jeff, you're hosting an event. What's practical? What's reasonable? We've covered weddings for people before. like, what are we doing? Why are we sending a, a medical person to a wedding? Right. And the answer is the person has a history. There's something there that's telling them they want to be prepared. They've had a, 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 they've had, they have an elderly population coming to their wedding and they want to have the comfort that if something happens, right, that, that there's, there's somebody available to, to treat and care for without the disruption that might happen if there wasn't anyone designated to take that care. So I think the range of events from Music festivals with 50,000 people to very intimate gatherings where there are very few people, but a high concern is really the attraction to understand what we need to provide. And there's no rule book. There's no rule book in Canada that says if you have X amount of people and you're doing this X amount of activity, this is what you should provide. It's really up to each individual person to do, each individual promoter or organizer to do a risk assessment and understand what the consequences are of the, of the environment that they're working in.
1: hmm Okay. So Extra, you, you've right. ta- you you you've talked all about what Odyssey does. Um, right. But, I mean, that falls, at least in the way that I'm framing it, under the umbrella of event medical management. Mm-hmm. Not everyone who's listening knows what event medical management is. And to allow people to better understand what event medical management is, I've yep. got two options for you to explain it. Kay. Number one, if you're a Flash gamer... I'm not sure if you ever played flash games very much, or if that was just my Zoomer generation. Is d- did you?
0: Uh, I understand it, but I'm not a gamer.
1: Okay, all right. Are you are you familiar with the games Bloons or Diner Dash?
0: I, unfortunately, not Diner Dash. To me, is something that you do to get your meal delivered to your office. But okay, carry okay, on. Give okay, so
1: let, let's not let's not let's not go down those paths then. Okay. If you had to explain to me or explain to a five-year-old what medical event management is, how would you do it using only monosyllabic or bisyllabic words?
0: I don't even know what mono or bisyllabic mean, but I'll try.
1: One or two syllables.
0: Yeah. So, so, so this is, so what we do is we bring to the field to where you're playing. We bring you the nurse's office. We bring you the doctor's office. We bring you the dentist's office. We bring you the place that you can go and get help if you're hurt, and we bring it to the event, versus it being something that you have to go to. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know that that answers the question the way that you wanted to be because it's an interesting question I've never thought about. Yeah, that's fair you enough to me.
1: You stumped me, Jeff. That that's 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 not my intention, but I think that's okay to push. Push, to push back on your sure. explanation, I think you've oversimplified it because okay. you do more than bring the doctors, you do more than bring the dentist. Yep. You also do all the planning to make sure that the doctors, the dentists, the nurses, everyone has the resources they need in order to best serve patients to the best of their ability when they're there, but also uh, just through a conversation to understand there's yeah. preventative care in making sure that there's education as well, as well as planning to mitigate to what extent you can injuries so that number one, you aren't overloaded. Uh, and number two, that in case something does go wrong beyond your capabilities to handle in the field, that you have a clear path to access high levels of care. Of course, that doesn't translate as well to a five-year-old. Um, but what I'm saying is, you, you did you did a pretty good job defining that. But I think the idea of what you do is quite complex, and that summary you did didn't really do justice to the amazing work that you do.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. I think of us in two ways: is that we are the envelope of safety around an event. Okay. okay, so the envelope of safety starts months and months in the planning process. We have a a, a seven step process that we go through to define and prepare for an event. And the first, it's 70% in the planning, mm-hmm. right? The work that we do is in the event, advan- in the, what we call the advance, right? The advance work up to understanding who the people are. What are they doing it? Where are they doing it? How are they doing it? And how long are they going to be doing it for? Right. So pr- planning for a furry 5k in a community park is a much different preparation cycle than an ultra marathon. Where people are going to be running, let's say a hundred miles over a thirty-six hour period, the stresses on the body and the opportunity for injury and illness to be present is much different. And it's not to say that they're higher or lower risk. It's really hard to look at that and say, well, the people going to an ultra marathon—they've actually prepared for this. They've trained. They've stressed their body. They've done the distance before. They understand food and nutrition. They have a support team that's there present to help them. The folks that are going to go and do the furry 5K, they're gonna wake up that morning and say, Hey, what do you want to do? Today, I say, hey, I heard there's a there's a, a run in the park. Why don't we go and do that? With no preparation, right? But a shorter period of intensity. So somebody going out for that event might be like, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna run this in in 40 minutes. I'm gonna do this 5k in 40 minutes for them. That's a, a massive physical st- feat. It's a physiological stress on their body. And it may in fact can't say this definitively, but maybe more difficult on the body systems because they're choosing to put it under duress for a short period of time with no preparation. Mm-hmm. Versus the ultra marathoner, right? Is there they've prepared? They've prepared. They've done all the things I indicated in advance of that. So they theoretically they've done some more preparation, which has prepared them for the eventuality when something goes dip wrong for them. So I think it's the envelope of safety that we put around an event that can be things like pre-event communication, communicating with the surrounding healthcare partners. We're bringing an event to your community. This is what you can expect. This can be liaisoning and working with the local paramedic service, right? Hey, how do we reduce the impact that this event has on the community, right? Because every time we're at a music festival, if we needed to transport somebody to a hospital and called an ambulance, over, the system would be overloaded very, very quickly, and the system would get grumpy because... I think of the services that we provide have an obligation to to minimize the impact that they have on the community but at the same token the community are these are invited guests you're inviting people to your community to participate therefore if the community communities the municipalities the healthcare system needs to be a good host right we're going to bring the like, fifa's coming to canada we've brought world-class events to canada and we need to consider, like the Olympics, we need to be able to consider what impacts those are going to be on the local healthcare system, mitigate the impacts, but at the same time, maintain a level of equality amongst our healthcare, which is just because you're here for an event doesn't mean you get to the top of the line, right? There's a system that is built through what what the, the Canadian healthcare system is. It's built on some premise of equality across that, right? Mm-hmm. Not Not the topic of today's conversation, because I know there's a lot in there. That's a bit of a minefield. But- One, bringing people to the community. How do we minimize the impact on the local healthcare services? The The one way to do that is to utilize the services of a company that can bring healthcare to the site.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment, so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.